Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. Our guest today is Joanna Trotter. Joanna is the Senior Program Officer for Economic and Community Development for the Chicago Community Trust, where she leads grant-making that supports regional and community-based organizations forwarding equitable development. Her career has included neighborhood-level economic development, civic engagement on behalf of a university, and technical assistance and policy work at a regional level. Joanna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Courtney. It's great to be here. Um, I'm fairly new in my role at the Chicago Community Trust, and quite often don't get to engage with my planning peers. So it's nice to be here and talk a little bit about urban planning. Well, and we're glad to have you. So jumping right in, tell us about how you originally discovered planning and why you chose it as a career. Great. Um, So I'm from Portland, Oregon, which we all know is sort of planning utopia, but I didn't know that growing up. Um, So a bit about my background. Um, I grew up in a community in Portland, Northeast Portland, if others um, are familiar that was extremely economically diverse. We lived in a community and I lived on a block where we had apartment complex, section eight housing, HUD housing. I didn't know what to call it at the time growing up. We had little mansions on our block. We have a funny story about a gentleman, Darcel, who was um, ran the actual uh, drag queen club in Portland and he owned a house and he would throw these elaborate block parties for the kids, right? So that was the environment I grew up in. My mom never owned a car, so we took public transportation and walked everywhere we went. Um, And so then I went to college in Atlanta. And so for one, the stark differences in the uh, built environment was drastic for me. Like, why are there no sidewalks? And why can I get anywhere on the bus, right, in the in the same fashion? So that was my first foray, sort of understanding the difference. Um, but then it goes a little deeper for me than that in Atlanta. One, I was exposed more to segregation than I had before. Um, and two, I, I did this oral history project of a community called Mechanicsville. So if folks have been to Atlanta, this is where Turner Field is or Turner Stadium, which is no longer Turner Stadium. In fact, it's being converted to the Georgia State football stadium. And what was stark to me is learning about the process of eminent domain. And in this traditionally African-American community, there was sort of this converging set of issues that they were dealing with. One is sort of these outside investment forces that were coming in and displacing families. And the second were the Atlanta child murder. So they actually had several young people disappear um, and were killed through that. And so this was all happening at the same time for this community. And, you know, now reading The Devil in the White City, it feels very similar in terms of these outside forces um, that are impacting a neighborhood. So I was just really fascinated about sort of state-sponsored displacement and eminent domain and how that happens. So that got me interested in planning policy and equity issues. Um, and then I went to UCLA where I focused on urban planning and public policy. So did you go to Atlanta under a different major and become more aware or make an official switch? I started out as a business major, and then I was already exploring um, a degree in African-American studies. So I was starting to to move over to issues of social justice um, then. And so it it kind of crystallized for me in the built environment and the way that planning happens in terms of um, how it impacts communities of color. So all of that was sort of shaping my worldview and the role of planning in those kind of decisions. And then Los Angeles must have been a third impactful built environment type. (laughs) 
Yeah, absolutely. So again, sprawling city, sprawling metropolis, impossible to get anywhere uh, via public transportation. I, I grew up. I grew up. I lived in Van Nuys, which is on the other side of Westwood, over the hills. So I always have to. I would have to either take the Sepulveda Pass, which takes forever, or the 405 freeway, which takes forever. And so just um, relating to issues of sprawl um, in, in areas that are not well planned was very stark for me, but also the fact that the UCLA program really focused on social justice issues. Um, so there was intersections with the labor movement. We had you know co-designed um, programs with the architecture school, the law school, public health, et cetera. So it really... Um, exposed me to a whole range of issues that intersect with planning. Um, and it was housed in the public policy school, so that allowed the policy lens to sort of come forth in the work as well. Interesting. So you're now with the Chicago Community Trust. Tell us a little more about that organization and its role um, in the Chicago Regional Foundation community. Yeah, so the Chicago Community Trust is the um, largest uh, community foundation here in this region. So there's community foundations set up in many parts of the country. We're one of the oldest. We've been around for over 100 years now. And I think it's always important to distinguish a community foundation from uh, private foundations in that we're really accountable to a range of donors and community stakeholders, right? And we're, we're really invested in place. We don't invest outside of our region um, unless it's through some partnership with other found community foundations in other parts of the country. Maybe it's around disaster release, relief, but largely... We're really focused, and, and almost all of our dollars go here and are directed here in this region. And we're also stewards to hundreds of donors who are utilizing the trust as a conduit to um, steward their uh, philanthropic giving. So we're not only managing our own portfolio, but that of other hundreds of families and um, other individuals interested in investing in this region. So that uh, sort of brings a different level of accountability to the work we do and the way that we give. Um, and it's really exciting to me to see the direction the trust is heading in terms of how we're engaging and partnering in the way that we do our philanthropy and the way that we inspire philanthropy in the region. So you lead grant making in the name of equitable development. How is that defined and what's the potential there? Yeah, so um, so I have two portfolios that I manage. One is uh, a long established portfolio uh, in housing, right? So we are really committed to uh, affordable housing development in the region. Uh, we we fund work that is about retaining um, affordable rental housing, whether that's uh, subsidized or just uh, on the private market. But it's one of the most effective ways to ensure affordability is to think about how do we preserve what we already have. Um, the second piece that we funded for many years was the response to the foreclosure crisis, which to me is a really good example of the role the trust can play. And that is we saw this huge crisis that our region was not equipped to handle. And we convened a whole range of stakeholders, whether it be housing counseling agencies, research organizations, policy advocacy group, to really put forth um, a comprehensive strategy around addressing foreclosure. So we're at the point now where, of course, that crisis is waned, but it is definitely not waned in some communities. Um, so we're, we're very cognizant of that. But I think what's in interesting is that the fact that the trust has shifted the way that it does grant making, where a large proportion of our grants are now through general operating support. So if you're a nonprofit, instead of funding you just for a project, we're actually giving you 
dollars saying we know the good work that you do and we'll allow you to use this money to be as flexible as you need it to be, whether that's for strategic planning or back office admin support or taking on a new role or a new strategic direction. These dollars are allowed to be used that way. So what's nice about that in this particular example with the foreclosure crisis is say, you know, some of the housing counseling agencies that we were supporting that were very focused on building their capacity around uh, foreclosure response and foreclosure counseling can now start to move into homeownership counseling and getting people ready to purchase homes. So it allows them to pull those dollars in a different direction based on the the needs of their clients and the the communities that they serve. Um, And then the third piece of that housing work is we're really looking at um, permanent supportive housing's role in improving um, outcomes in terms of education Uh, in terms of recidivism for those returning from the criminal justice system, and in terms of quality of of life in terms of health. So there's all this research, and we were very inspired by work that the MacArthur Foundation supported in terms of these connections and these outcomes and um, are starting to support efforts that are trying to bring them more close together, so bringing in the health community and the housing community and thinking about ways that those investments happen together and that we're providing stable housing at the same time that we're improving people's health. Um, So that's really exciting to me is just um, connecting the issues more because I think often sort of housing's put over here in this bucket separate um, and Uh, there's not a recognition of um, how important it is in terms of those other outcomes. So that's that. Um, In terms of our economic development portfolio, that's actually new for the trust. We funded, you know, really strategic initiatives in the past, like the economic plan for Chicago, for example. Um, But my role is to really shape that portfolio under the trust's new strategic plan, which really has racial equity at the heart of it. Um, So as I think about economic development, it's really starting to identify measure and implement what we would call inclusive growth. And that is, instead of just focusing on growing our economy, how do we put inclusion first in that, and that we make sure that we are creating opportunities for minority and women-owned businesses, that we are making sure that there's opportunities at the front end for uh, folks who have been often locked out of the workforce um, as we're growing, right? And the other piece is, how do we start to invest uh, locally in neighborhoods and communities that have often been under overlooked by the the private market. So how do we create wealth from within and and, um, do more asset building work in communities that um, have been challenged in terms of just being overlooked too because of uh, a number of of market issues, but also structural racism, right, in terms of um, what communities are deserving of investment. So those are all the things that we're starting to grapple with. Well, and I would imagine that taking a place-based lens um, helps bring those issues together, but it hasn't always been that way, so it is an encouraging thing. Um, You guys, for example, are leading an effort around TOD that Mm -hmm. also looks at affordable housing, understands um, the power of TOD for job creation and quality of life across the board. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so... um so we, and this is sort of another role of a community foundation, is that there was a national competition called Strong, Prosperous, and Resilient Communities Challenge, which was focused on um, key infrastructure investments or major sort of policy shifts in, in different regions and how those opportunities or those sort of catalytic moments in time could help to start to bring together outcomes in health and culture and equity and sustainability. So it's kind of a big... Uh, big list of things that they want to start to see start to come together. 
And for the Chicago region, it was interesting for us because we didn't have the big new shiny investment coming into our region. So we sort of took a risk to say, look, we have um, aging but core transit infrastructure. And when we think about our history of segregation in the region, you can see it starkly along our transit lines. And so what we recognize is that whether it be the Metropolitan Planning Council's cost of segregation study or the work that Prosperity Now did around the racial wealth gap, that our region is starting to get more serious around this issue. Um, CMAP is now prioritizing inclusive growth as it defines um, you know, its work going into 2050. And so we tried to make the case that we're starting to see momentum and more organizations sort of recognizing that this is an issue and one that impacts us all. So that was the case we made. Um, and so because the found, the community foundation was there, we're a conduit for the funding that's coming nationally, and then we've provided uh, local matching support through our own philanthropic dollars. So Elevated Chicago is what we're calling ourselves now. Um, this is a coalition of local community-based partners, civic organizations, community development financial institutions, and we've picked several sites around the Chicago area, um, Garfield Park, sort of North Lawndale area, Little Village area, the south side um, along the Green Line from Woodlawn up to Bronzeville, um, and then um, the north side around Logan Square because that's sort of a different challenge in terms of challenges with displacement. And so we're looking at opportunities for development, but ones that really focus on community ownership, community engagement, um, and new models that start to sort of tease out these intersections between health, um, culture, and arts, and sustainability. So I don't know if it's anecdotal or provable, but I do feel like more foundations are getting into the game of planning, uh, most notably through funding it. And growing up, my stepfather always talked about Murphy's Golden Rule, which is whoever has the gold makes the rules. <laughs> so what does the relationship look like when there's a community-based initiative that may have traditionally been undertaken and funded by a municipality um, what does that look like when it's essentially funded by a third party? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. We continue to be very careful that we're not um, taking on the role of government or public agencies, right? Um, so if I think about the role that we play with Elevated Chicago, you know, our investments are going to really look at how do we support implementation, um, whether that's programming, it could be cultural interventions um, with Spark, with Strong, Prosperous, and Resilient Communities Challenge. There's a uh, a pool of capital dollars that we can actually invest in development projects themselves. And then we have you know, set up the coalition to have a systems change component. So it's really about sharing barriers and um, issues that community organizations and community partners have faced as they've tried to implement and how can we help remove those barriers by partnering with the city or the county or whoever. Um, so that's really the, the role philanthropy should play is how do we support advocacy and implementation. Um, but I am really cognizant and, and often frustrated while I believe in planning. I feel like there's, particularly in communities of color, there's often planning without the resources behind it to implement. So many communities feel overplanned and they feel overengaged with no results from it, right? So it's bringing them to the table yet again. Um, and so with efforts like Elevated Chicago, what we're trying to do is just say, let's look at what happened already and let's prioritize and align with some of the values that Elevated Chicago is trying to address, health, equity, sustainability, uh, and culture, and, and start to help and support that implementation. You know, it's really hard. You know, the trust funds a whole range of issuaries. As a community foundation, um, I don't think you can think about a quality of life issue that we don't support, whether it's basic human needs and homelessness and um, 
you know, housing and uh, sustainability issues and health and immigration. Um, so when we think about living in an environment where we didn't have an Illinois state budget for many years, it was sort of what what is the role of philanthropy in, in serving and supporting the gaps that organizations who are vital to our community were facing. So that's something we definitely have to grapple with on a regular basis, but we don't have the kind of resources that the state or the city has. So we have to think very strategically around how we invest and where we invest. So are there things that jump out to you about what feels different or looks different under this arrangement? Yeah, I think um, what's what's really exciting is just the range of ways that we're testing new ways to do philanthropy. Whether, you know, with Elevated Chicago, we're actually engaging community stakeholders and partners in making grant-making decisions. They're, they're literally on the review teams that are saying how grant dollars should be spent based on the priorities of the community. Um, you know, we just launched in partnership with the MacArthur Foundation Calvert Fund Benefit Chicago a year ago that's looking at impact investing and supporting social innovation in the field and providing financing and resources for that. Um, you know, so we're doing, we, we've done, um, we've done prize competitions around local food systems through Foodland Opportunities. So there's just all sorts of new ways we're testing the role of philanthropy and grant making in our region, and that's really exciting to see. Um, so it's nice to innovate. It's nice to learn from best practices in other parts of the country and apply it here. And it's for us, given that we've moved to general operating funding, so what we call Go Grants, which again provides this more flexible set of resources, what it allows us to do is start to uh, um, reduce the sort of grant maker grantee relationship and, and really be looked at and 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 involved as a partner um, and a thought partner moving forward where there's sort of a mutual learning exchange as we move along. So what we do is for the the grants that we provide in terms of Go Grants, we actually bring those grantees together and start to learn in terms of what's happening in the field, where we need to be responsive, what issues they're facing, and ways that they can begin to work together. And allowing that to happen has really kind of opened up their own possibilities. So as I mentioned, the work we're doing around the housing um, sort of intersectional work with other issue domains like health and, and criminal justice. That actually came from our grantees who said that this was something they were interested in exploring but didn't have the resources um, locally to support it. So it was just great for us to be able to test that out based on the feedback that we got from the folks that we fund. Interesting. So sounds like a renewed commitment to partnership and then maybe what's a little newer is almost peer-to-peer mm-hmm. um, not, not, I don't even want to say learning because it sounds more than that, but um, integrating the grantees into the work so that the lessons are shared and they're part of the process too. Right. right. Switching gears for a second, you did neighborhood level economic development in the Rogers Park neighborhood of Chicago. What did you find most rewarding and most challenging about that work? Well, uh, that was my first gig outside of uh, urban planning school. So while I was at UCLA, I, I did some work in West Hollywood, where I worked on inclusionary zoning there. And then I worked for Policy Link, which is the national organization advancing equity. Um, so this was my sort of official role as planner. I got my interview, actually, as I was driving from L.A. to Chicago. Um, And, you know, it was really interesting because I've always lived on the south side since I've um, come to Chicago. So while I was working in Rogers Park, I actually lived in Hyde Park. And it was always fascinating to me that on paper, these two communities look almost identical. A third African-American, a third white, a third um, Latinx. But uh, as you experience those two two communities, they're very different. Where uh, Rogers Park was sort of a microcosm of Chicago segregation, where you had 
people of color, black people living north of Howard, the Latino community really congregating around Clark Street and sort of the white community living in the heart of, of Rogers Park. And I think what was most challenging for me was how that kind of carried out in terms of how priorities were set, where investment happened. And so for me, I, I managed the special service area for Howard Street, and it often felt like the stepchild of Rogers Park, right? It's, um, and so that was very stark for me and hard for me to grapple with, because when I would go back to my house in Hyde Park, people, it felt much more integrated in terms of the way uh, folks interacted with each other and the way that community prior, prioritized together. So that was intriguing to me, but it was also a great learning experience in terms of um, really being exposed to um, market development at a local neighborhood level. So a lot of the work that I had done before was more housing focused. And so this was my foray into economic development and commercial development. And really taking a tiny slice of the pie when you think about yeah. uh, how place informs our work. If you have a certain number of city blocks that you're responsible for, uh, I know in my experience it's interesting the types of things you get involved with that you maybe never would have imagined, but also real ability to have impact. I right. Think. So the other thing I would say in terms of uh, my experience in Rogers Park, but also just my overall career trajectory, is that it's always been this interesting tension for me between place-based work and more systems-level change and regional-level um, efforts. So, you know, I've bounced back and forth from working very strategically in a community like West Hollywood or Rogers Park or even the South Side through the University of Chicago to working for organizations like the Metropolitan Planning Council and the Chicago Community Trust, which is trying to take a much more comprehensive look um, and that balance and that tension is something I always appreciate um, of making sure that the work I'm doing is grounded in place and how it impacts real people. But it's always interesting that I've never been able to decide between where I really want to land. So the trust allows me to do a mix of both, which is great. It's been really rewarding in that in that aspect. So you mentioned um, working for the University of Chicago. That's also not a typical spot for a planner to end up. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work there? Yeah. Well, um, so I uh, frankly moved to the University of Chicago because I was very inspired by the new leadership there. Um, So as a Southsider since 2003, I know the role that Anchor Institution plays in the community. It's got a lot of history, some baggage, right? And while I was at the Metropolitan Planning Council, I worked with Derek Douglas, who now heads up their office of civic engagement while he's at the White House working under the Obama administration. So Derek was very involved in like the Sustainable Communities Initiative at a national level and um, a range of kind of cross-functional efforts at at the federal level. And so coming to the university, he had a real vision for the role the university could play in, in impacting the community and opening itself up into the community. So that was really interesting to me to sort of take a moment in time to think about work on the South Side um, at an institution that had real backing in the way it could implement. So my work there was really a supportive role in terms of neighborhood development, where I supported work by Fiesta Gates, where he already opened the arts incubator through the University of Chicago in Washington Park, helped to plan for that entire block in terms of other cultural uses that can go on the block. I worked um, to support uh, building a new school. Um, so the University of Chicago has four, uh, a sort of a network of four charter schools. This was their only high school that they had that was located in Woodlawn. And so they were building a new facility for a high school that already existed. And this is an extremely high performing high school where like 100% of the students graduate uh, and go to college. And they have one of the highest college retention rates um, in the region. 
So the fact, and, and what was also great about that charter school is that they actually have uh, place-based local neighborhood priorities in terms of who gets enrolled, which is unlike many charter schools. So being able to sort of bring that to fruition, which is now almost open, is really exciting. So um, the other piece that I worked on um, pretty intentionally, one was the bid for the Obama Presidential Center, but also redefining and reshaping the university's employer-assisted housing program to provide more incentives for employees to look outside of Hyde Park. So traditionally, the university would tell faculty and staff that Hyde Park was the safe bet in terms of where to purchase homes. Um, This was an effort to say there's other communities that are worthy and interesting to invest in. And so we actually provided more incentive for employees who are willing to purchase outside of Hyde Park. Um, And that was a huge success. We actually had 80% of our employees then use the program to purchase outside of Hyde Park. So we had a solid community already, and this was the way to sort of expand that investment and bring more stakeholders into communities like Woodlawn and Bronzeville. That was going to be my next question. Maybe if folks aren't familiar yeah. with the hyper-local neighborhood dynamics, um, Hyde Park and the university are seen you know, as not one and the same, but um, like you said, the, the university had historically said stay in Hyde Park, and you were trying to expand that to some neighboring right. communities as well. Exactly. So I've just learned that you've lived in four iconic U.S. cities, right? Portland, Atlanta, Los Angeles, and Chicago. Mm-hmm. Even if it's not one of those, do you? and it can be anywhere in the world, do you have a favorite city? Uh, so I love Portland. I also spent time when I was at Policy Link in Oakland and Berkeley area, um, which I would say would be one of my favorites. So um, I like the East Bay. Um, so San Francisco is great, but I love the culture of the East Bay. It much more sort of resonates with my Portland background. Um, and if it wasn't so darn expensive, I would live there now. <laughs> yeah, I take comfort in, that's when I take comfort in Chicago's weather. I think if we had perfect weather, none of us could afford to live exactly, here either. Exactly, right. Um, so I'm curious, and this is something I ask all of my guests, what do you think the field of planning is getting right these days? What inspires you? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think planners are doing more to think about the kind of tactical approaches to planning that that are more um, implementable, more bite-sized, right, is sort of the response to that we're living in a in a environment of scarcity, right, in terms of public dollars and public investment. So ways that we can begin to think of empowering residents in their role in, in investing in place, I think, is really important. I love the fact that, you know, we're doing more intersectional work. You know, I'm, I'm talking about it more on a broad um, scale in terms of housing and health, et cetera, but I see it applied in place all the time, which is great. Thinking comprehensively about people first, whether it's complete streets or, or placemaking or place placekeeping. Uh, place um, and then, you know, you can't work with somebody like Fiesta Gates without really being influenced by the role of arts and culture and bringing a new perspective to the way investment happens and the way that we shape our built environment. So um, I'm always intrigued by the role of culture, not as a means to gentrify, but as a means to empower and, in, and a means to in, engage a broader perspective of local residents um, that may not be intrigued or interested in if we come through a more strict planning lens. So I love the, um, I think the challenge to the planning approach that sometimes culture can bring. So that's really intriguing to me is, 
is it being a vehicle for creativity at the local resident level in terms of what is possible and what is beautiful, right? Like I, I moved to Chicago from LA and driving through the South Side and seeing our historic gems and realizing how undervalued they were um, was amazing to me. That was the first memory I have. Like, why, why is this vacant? Um, where in LA we would die for something like this because everything is new and sort of tacky, tacky construction. Um, so I think that that was intriguing to me is like, how do we start to recognize these assets in a different way and particularly have community residents um, dream about those assets in a different way? That I think there's been so many years of um, disinvestment, it's hard to think about what's possible. And not surprisingly, my typical follow-up is what would you like to see happening more in planning, which I will ask you, but as a follow-up to what you just shared, I've taken a, a personal interest in focusing more on integrating health and planning. And a lot of the foundations, there's big moves happening around this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not sure it's penetrating the local level, like your typical planner. Part of me feels like this is a very duh moment, like health and planning. Yes, why didn't we start this 100 years? Well, we did do it 100 years ago, and then we lost our way. So on the one hand, it's a ve- it's very much a no-brainer, but I don't see it happening as quickly as I'd like. Um, wondering your reactions to what the barriers might be, or maybe you see it differently than me. Yeah, I think it's speaking each other's language, which is really hard, and I think we take for granted how hard that is. Um, you know, in all of the regulatory forces that influence both fields, health in and planning, and all the related issue areas that planning addresses. But it is really exciting to see hospitals really stepping up in terms of their role in investment locally, right? Whether it's Rush's total health work on the west side of Chicago, um, we're just we're supporting Norwegian as they're um, looking and engaging community in their entire campus. So they um, own many properties surrounding their campus and seem really flexible in terms of what the end use would be, thinking about how do we create these um, communities of health. And I'm seeing other hospital systems sort of doing similar work. So that's really exciting to me. But I think I think you're right. I think that there's so much more potential. I think part of it is just getting to a moment of scale, of starting to recognize and promote the best practices and models that are out there um, so that particular hospital systems who can invest in this stuff feel more comfortable that this isn't something that they're inventing on their own, right? So that's a piece that we're sort of, now that we're, we're funding some health housing partnerships and can we start to convene people to say, this is starting to happen. So it's not like you're reinventing the wheel or creating something new. Let's just build off of that and figure out how we can get to scale. Because we know scale is happening in other parts of the country and it's kind of new for us here that, we're, that we need to start modeling these best practices. So now I will ask my scripted question. Um, <laughs> What would you like to see happening more in planning? Where have we just not gotten there yet? I think I've talked about it some, but you know, again, planning without implementation is really key. Um, but given my focus on equity and inclusion, I um, we have a lot of work to do in our field in terms of who's represented, who's doing the work, how are we being culturally competent in the way that we work with communities, not paternalistic in the way we approach um, local community residents and their assets and their knowledge about their own neighborhoods. I think all of that is just really critical and um, really looking internally at our organizations in terms of who we're promoting, who we're hiring, um, who we're representing. So I think that's a, a stark issue, I think, that we face across the field. 
Well, I appreciate your insights and your time today. Thanks for sharing, especially about the the impact different cities have had on you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Courtney. It's great to be here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at planning.org. 